0: Well, it's been great being with you these last few weeks in this short series on the Doctrine of Election. Uh, We come to the last of the talks today. Uh, What we've seen so far in this series, in the first two weeks, firstly, in week one, God is completely sovereign, uh, like a potter with clay, the creator is entitled to do whatever he wants with his creation. Then last week, what we saw in the second week, uh, we heard that sobering reminder, we are all totally sinful. There is no unrighteous, not even one. Which means that if God treated us fairly, if we got what we deserved, no one would be saved. Well, as I've been saying throughout this series, it's all been building, in a sense, to this last talk. Uh, That's why I've kept deferring all those tricky questions you've been raising until today. That'll keep you coming back. Uh, Obviously, I'm not going to cover everything in the time allotted. uh, But I think, in the end of the day, most of the questions around the topic of election or predestination boil down to one of two questions. Firstly, If it's up to God to choose us, how can we be held responsible? What about this question of free will? And secondly, if God is the one who chooses us, how ought we live in response? What does that mean for prayer and for evangelism? I'm going to try and cover both of those questions in today's talk. You'll see from your outline, again, I hope you've got it downloaded there and printed out in front of you. A big idea, some questions to consider and how might we respond and some blanks for you to fill in that will help make sense of the outline. Well, point one, then, the big idea. Actually, there's two big ideas today, uh, because both go to the very nature of God's character, of what he is like, which I think is the key to this whole series. So firstly, when God chose us, and the blank for you to fill in, when did God choose us? Before the creation of the world. Before the creation of the world. The most astonishing aspect of the biblical doctrine of election uh, is not that God chooses us. Actually, the most astonishing aspect is when God chose us. Not just before we were born, uh, Romans 9 verse 22, but even before he made the universe. So look again with me at at the Ephesians reading that we've just heard read, printed there on your handout. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3. Now notice there that word predestination, uh, which is both bolded and then I've noted underneath those little squiggles afterwards, uh, they're the Greek word for predestination. This is the strongest form of the doctrine of election. Not just that God chose us, but that he chose us even before the creation of the world. And it's based on the six occurrences in the New Testament of that word that's translated as predestination. The Greek word is proorizo, but the English word predestination. And I've given you all six references there on your handout for you to look up sometime. Well, can I say that uh, I realize that if this is the first time you've even heard of this concept of predestination, of God choosing us even before the creation of the world... Then I have no doubt that at this exact moment your head is spinning with all sorts of questions. How is that even possible for God to do that? Before we dig into those questions, I want to ask you to play a game with me for just a moment. Here's the game. The game is called What If? What if the doctrine of predestination is true? I want to play this game because if it is true, I hope you can see that the doctrine of predestination is both confronting and comforting. Both confronting and comforting. Now, the confronting is pretty obvious. I don't really need to go into that. But today I want to show you why it's so comforting to be told that God chooses us, not just before we were born even before the creation of the world, even before he started to make the whole universe. Uh, You see that in two ways, I think. Negatively, uh, we saw last week in Talk 2 that we're enslaved to our sinful human nature, which means that if salvation were up to us, we'd always choose poorly, so no one would be saved. But put more positively, if God chose us, if God chose you and me, even before the creation of the world, it makes it pretty clear that my standing before him has nothing to do with my efforts. Now, of course, that's a little bit of an affront to my pride. But if I can get over that, I hope you can see it's the most wonderful relief. You see, predestination means you don't have to rely on yourself Which, at least in my case, given how fickle and fallible I am, and how often and how easily I stumble and fall, that is indeed a great comfort. That's the reason why I think Ephesians chapter 1 began, in verse 3, Praise be to God, praise be to God, for he chose us. Well, a little while ago, I was talking to an older Christian saint um, about this doctrine of election, and uh, she shared a bit of her reflections on it over the years. Such a powerful reflection that I asked her if I could share her story with you. Here's what she said. When I moved to Adelaide in 1976, I tried out Holy Trinity, and I was utterly appalled by the first sermon I ever heard. It was the first in a series on election. I had never heard anything quite so offensive as the doctrine of total depravity and the idea that we didn't have free will. I really didn't want to hear another sermon like that. But the preaching was so carefully argued with points backed up from scripture that I kept coming back. However, I decided that I'd try and beat the preachers at their own game. So, using my Bible... I set about trying to disprove this offensive teaching. For the next three months, I filled an exercise book with arguments. But ultimately, they all turned out to be circular. It was so infuriating. Gradually, I realised I wanted to know what was true. And so one afternoon, I found myself crying out in desperation to God, it cannot be true. And immediately these words came to me, election is true and it applies to you. And so at the age of 26, this offensive doctrine of election, which I'd found so confronting and to be honest still do after 43 years of believing it, it became a source of great comfort. I'd found my identity at last, an ordinary sinner like everyone else, whom God had for some reason chosen to have in his family for those for whom Christ had died. Well, what was that reason? Point two, why God chose us. Here's the blank for you to fill in. Because he loves us. Because he loves us. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 says, In love he predestined us. In love he predestined us. Paul is saying the reason God chose us is not because we were deserving in any way. The the world hadn't even been made. No, the reason God chose us is simply because he loved us. There are so many questions about the doctrine of election that, to be honest, I suspect we'll never fully answer. Why would God make some people knowing that he would not choose them? I'll never forget when one of my kids was eight years old and after bedtime stories turned to me and said, Daddy, why would God make a talking snake if it would cause Adam and Eve to sin? Typical pastor's kid, huh? Always asking the hard questions. Or here's my question. Why would God make the universe knowing it would cost the death of his own son to redeem broken creation? There are many questions I suspect we'll never fully know the answer to. But there is one question we do. Why did God choose us? Answer, because he loved us. Well, there's the big idea, big ideas for this week. Point two then, some questions to consider. And you'll see the two that I want to address here. They're both printed on your handout. Firstly, if it's up to God to choose us, how can we be held responsible? What about the question of free will? Well, at one level, we saw last week in talk two that the reason we're held responsible is because all of us reject our loving creator. And so it's both right and inevitable that we reap what we sow. Now, I do realise, of course, that more needs to be said on this topic. As you know, I work with undergraduates, so it won't surprise you that this question comes up fairly often. So to do that, let me introduce you to the single most important and helpful resource I've come across. Um, It's a chapter that I photocopied out of a book that I give to anyone who asks me about the doctrine of election. I say to them, go and read this chapter, then let's come back and talk about the issues that are raised. Uh, I've extracted there on your handout uh, just one paragraph from it. It's from a Canadian theologian by the name of Don Carson. Here's what he says. Follow along. The Bible teaches that both of the following propositions are true. One, God is completely sovereign, but his sovereignty never functions in a way that human responsibility is curtailed, minimized or mitigated. Two, human beings are morally responsible creatures. They significantly choose, rebel, obey, believe, defy, make decisions and so forth, and they're rightly held accountable for such actions but this characteristic never functions so as to make God absolutely contingent. The view that both of these propositions are true, I shall call compatibilism. Compatibilism. Now you notice here that Carson doesn't try to explain how both these propositions can be simultaneously true. Actually, what he goes on to say, and I think he's right, is that we're not told how they can be true, simply that both are true. Which means I think the more important question to ask is, is this view, compatibilism, is it supported by scripture? Well, take, if you will, as an example, Pharaoh. Pharaoh and the ten plagues at the time in which Moses then leads the people out of Egypt in the Exodus, This is a great example of how God's sovereignty and human responsibility are expressed. You see, sometimes we're told that in refusing to let the Israelites go, Pharaoh's heart was hard. Sometimes we're told, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And sometimes we're told, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. In fact, you see examples of all three in chapter 9, I printed the verses there for you at the top of the handout on the right-hand side, chapter 9, verses 34 uh, through to 10.1. When Pharaoh saw that the rain and hail and thunder had stopped, he sinned again. He and his officials hardened their hearts. So Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not let the Israelites go, just as the Lord had said through Moses. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh For I have hardened his heart and the hearts of the officials so that I may perform these miraculous signs of mine among them. The point is that when taken together, it's clear that scripture affirms both that God is totally sovereign and that we are completely responsible for our actions. Or if I give you a New Testament example, take the Lord's Prayer. In the Lord's Prayer, we confess God's unfettered sovereignty. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your name be hallowed. Whilst at the same time, we also take responsibility for our actions. Hence, lead us not into temptation. Now, Obviously, you're going to want to go and check and see if there are other passages in the Bible that support and defend this view of compatibilism. You want to be like the Bereans, as I encouraged you in the first week. But for now, if the Bible affirms both God's sovereignty and our responsibility, I think there's not much value in speaking of human free will. I alluded to this last week. seems to me that when people want to insist my will is free, what they're really worried about is God knowing my decision even before I've made it. And I understand the concern. But my issue with the concern is that it can give the impression that although the Bible says God knows every other detail about his creation, he knows what happens to the birds of the air, He knows the number of hairs on my head. God knows the rise and fall of nations in advance. He knows the date of my death, even the date of Christ's return. The Bible says God knows all of those things. But if you believe in free will, it says he cannot know my mind. Which feels to me just a little bit presumptuous. Uh, Or to put it this way, again, as I suggested last week, I'm okay with us saying, yes, we have human free will, provided you're okay with me adding, and 100% of human beings use that free will to turn away from God. Because as we saw last week, if we were capable of saving ourselves, Christ died for nothing. Well, that's the first of the big questions. The second, has God predestined some for hell? has God predestined some for hell? Uh, what about what's called double predestination? That is, God predestined some for eternal life and some for eternal damnation. Well, let me acknowledge that in many ways I think this is the hardest question of all. Because this goes to the very character of God. And much as you might like to me to, um, actually I'm not going to avoid this question today. Look with me, if you will, at Romans chapter 9, verse 22. Again, one of our readings. Romans 29, verse 22 and 23. What if, God, although choosing to, what if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? Now, Romans 9 verse 22 appears to suggest that God makes some people for destruction. Let me point out a couple of things. Firstly, the phrase there in verse 22, prepared for destruction, prepared for destruction, it's not one of those six occurrences of the word for predestination. And I think that's significant. Because actually, The Bible never applies that word for predestination to unbelievers. So I suspect neither ought we. And without getting too technical, did you notice how the phrase prepared for destruction is passive, not active? It implies, I think, or gives room for the fact that we contribute in some way to that. The contrast, in fact, is with verse 23, where it says, God prepared in advance for glory the objects of his mercy. Well, I really admire the careful and precise way that Broughton Knox has put it in his excellent book, The Everlasting God. You'll see it printed there on your handout. The doctrine of predestination is that from eternity, God has chosen some for salvation in Christ, but has left others to their own choice of rebellion against him. Uh, On some he has mercy, drawing them to Christ. Others he has hardened by allowing them to harden themselves, or rather to be hardened by Satan, whose slaves they have willingly become. Now, I get that this is confronting, Uh, You'll notice that I've not used the argument from Romans 9, uh, where it says, who are you to talk back to God? I've not used that argument to try and suppress discussion. Actually, what I want to say is that I do think we have one choice to make. And here it is. Given that we will never understand everything about an infinite and perfect God, here's our choice will we choose to believe him when he says that he is good and trustworthy? Or will we let our discomfort with the Bible's explanations or reasons or even lack thereof about election, will we let them become our primary concern? To put it slightly differently, will you start with the presumption that the God who loves all that he has made is fair and just. Pretty therefore your reference from Genesis 18 verse 25. Here Abraham is almost bargaining with God over Sodom and Gomorrah, pleading with him to spare them. And he asks, rhetorically, will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? I want to ask you if you can begin with that presumption that God is fair and just, then perhaps you might begin to glimpse how this admittedly very confronting doctrine of election can also be wonderfully comforting. Because what the Bible repeatedly insists is that God is both perfectly just and perfectly fair, but nevertheless, he leans towards mercy. He leans towards mercy. Do you remember what we saw last week? Because we've all rejected our Creator, if we were to be treated fairly, that would mean no one would be saved. Which means that if God saves anyone, it doesn't make him unjust. Uh, Let me give you an illustration. Imagine there are two convicted criminals on death row. If the governor chooses to pardon one of them, you wouldn't say he's unjust. That's the wrong standard for assessing his character. The Bible consistently portrays a God who is supremely merciful, hence the title of today's talk. A God who keeps relenting and withholding judgment. Think of Nineveh, when Jonah finally gets there. Or David, when he repents of his adultery. Or Moses as he pleads with God after the golden calf incident. Can I say that for me, I've been a Christian now for 30 or so years. And although I still feel the challenges of predestination, and it's okay, therefore, I think, to keep questioning and asking and debating, what I want to say is that my experience is that although it's still hard, I'm less bothered by it than when I first came to faith. That's not a cop-out. That's not meant to be condescending to younger believers, as if to say, oh, just wait till you're a little bit older and it'll all be okay. It's an admission that the Bible probably won't fully answer all of my questions, because that's not why it was written. The Bible was written to showcase God's character. God's character. His incredible compassion and his mercy, which is new every morning. Well, the big idea some questions to consider. Let me try and wrap up this talk and this whole series with some reflections on how might we respond. Remember that second category of question I identified up front? If God does choose us, how should we live? Why would we bother praying? Why would we persist in evangelism? Uh, well, of course, the key is that, as we've seen, although God is sovereign in every way, we are still responsible for our actions. Uh, that is, as I've written on your handout, election should not make us lazy or licentious. It should not make us lazy or licentious. Uh, that's sadly the two most common responses. Uh, laziness, that is apathy. Why bother trying if God is completely sovereign? Or licentiousness. Oh, God will bail me out at the end. Uh, I can endorse myself. Uh, Because if God has chosen us, I've got to get out of jail free card. I just want to say that like in any relationship, be it friendship or marriage, if someone decides of their own volition to shower their love on you, you want to respond positively. Uh, Otherwise, the relationship won't last. Or, Or more to the point, you would never tolerate someone else treating you that way. So when I get asked, why do I have to live a particular way if it's up to God to save me? My response is usually, well, why wouldn't you want to live in a way that pleases an incredibly generous saviour? Well, three suggested applications and responses. They're on your handout. Very quickly, firstly, make disciples of all nations. Make disciples of all nations. Uh, Jesus never says, because God is sovereign, kick back and wait for God to save the elect. What Jesus actually says, Matthew 28, make disciples of all nations. So don't let our confidence in his unfettered sovereignty, our conviction that his kingdom will come and that his will will be done on earth as in heaven, don't let that turn us into Christians who refuse to share the gospel with others, either out of fear or apathy or inconvenience. There's a quote for you there on your handout from William Carey, uh, the so-called father of modern mission um, when he proposed to set up the first Baptist mission society in 1786 he was told by an older minister quote there young man when God is pleased to convert the when God is pleased to convert the heathen he will do so without your help or mine this is going to sound a little bit facetious but I remember a number of years ago there was a church up in the hills that refused to advertise its service times the argument was that well God's elect would find their find their way there anyway Here's the slightly facetious part. The church is closed down now. Now, as an aside, if you're here today, if you're watching this as an unbeliever, then once again, thanks for giving your time to try and wrestle with a really tricky question. Can I say to you, this is the reason why your Christian friend keeps nagging at you? Why they keep trying to invite you along to church or talk to you about Jesus? They're not trying to do so because they are trying to offend you in any way. They're doing it because they deeply love you. Enough even to risk your friendship if it means that you might gain the salvation we've already received. So can I implore you? Ask them today why they're doing what they're doing. I know they would love to tell you. At the same time, I hope you can see that the opposite view to God's electing choice, thinking that it's up to us to please, to choose God, I hope you can see that that places a terrible evangelistic burden on our shoulders. As It says that the fate of the lost lies with us. Because if people aren't saved, it's because we haven't told them. I think in the end, the only way in which you persist in evangelism throughout your whole life is knowing that the salvation of others doesn't depend on you, but only on God's supreme mercy. My wife Wendy spent many years praying for an older unbelieving friend. As that friend neared death, Wendy went to visit her one last time to urge her to repent. Sadly, she did not. But I still remember Wendy coming home and when I asked her how she felt, she said that she knew she'd done all that she could and that her friend's salvation was now up to God, as it had always been. Although deeply saddened, Wendy was not overcome by grief, but rather content in the knowledge that whatever the God of mercy did with her friend, it would be right. Well, make disciples of all nations. Secondly, more quickly, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is a quote from Romans 10, verse 13. The confronting words in Romans 9 on election give way to the comforting words in Romans 10. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That means that when people ask, how can I be certain that God has chosen me from before the creation of the world? I reply in the response that I heard when I first asked this question, the response that stuck with me ever since. If you're not sure that you've been predestined, get yourself predestined today. Call on the name of Jesus, and you will be saved. Make disciples of all nations, call on the name of Jesus. Thirdly and finally, let me say something about Christian assurance. I want to finish here with our last Bible reading, with Jesus' words in John chapter 10. Because all along I've been trying to say that this confronting doctrine of election is also wonderfully comforting. Here's the reason why. Christian assurance ultimately lies not what in I will do, but in what God has done and promises he will still complete. Because Christian assurance must never be found in us or our resolve or our plans, or our intentions. It is grounded solely in the conviction that God chose us before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. And that means that the right way to finish this series is not by looking inwards at ourselves. It's not by looking at that list of questions that we're wrestling with. The right way for this series to finish is with us looking up, looking up to Jesus, who with the Father is greater than all, and who promises that no one can snatch us away. On your handout, John chapter 10, my sheep listen to my voice and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the grace and mercy that you've shown us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that you chose us, even before you made the world, to be holy and blameless in your sight. We praise you for your goodness. And we ask that you might enable us to keep our eyes fixed firmly on him who is our Saviour and strength. Amen.